Flashlights Movement. On Flashpoints, black and brown lives really do matter. So join us here on KPFA every weekday at 5 p.m. Thank you. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Jennifer Stone and Cover to Cover. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. Well, hell's bells, boys and girls. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. It's February the 7th, 2017. Are you ready for the fall of Western civilization? (laughs) Never mind. No venting, no venting. Ah, did you hear what Nancy Pelosi said? She said, what has Putin got on Trump? D.J. Trump. Oh, I always yammer on about politics being theater. Kabuki theater, maybe. Actually, the question today is whether it's a Greek tragedy or a Roman farce. Swings first one way, then the other. The past uh, few days, weeks, this past month, uh, oh, the outrage literally made me sick. I'm ashamed to say I, I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to be so, so upset. Anyway, I got such a headache. I've begun to tune in to uh, the cable station that runs the British Parliament. Yes, that nice Theresa May. She's she's certainly no Maggie Thatcher, the new Prime Minister, but. I just like to watch those guys and try to remember what civilization looks like. Uh, no matter how angry and actually <laughs> oppressive the Brits have been, they, uh, well, they, they keep laughing no matter what. You know, they, they find, uh, they find a joyous task, all this, uh, uh, what do you call that, uh, Hmm, I don't know what we call it. Uh, government, that's what it is. It's, uh, government. They actually connect with each other. Uh, actually, years ago, the Brits got rid of their House of Lords. Uh, 
you know, their upper house. Now, if we could just get rid of the Senate, actually it doesn't work that way here in the U.S. of A. Uh, and it's certainly no solution. Uh, our rich guys are oligarchy. I love that word. Our oligarchy of wealth and power. Uh, they are in both houses of Congress and they lord it over uh, anyone they can. Uh, anyway, no more venting, no more venting. Today, uh, I've already wasted four minutes. I want to talk about James Baldwin today because uh, James Baldwin was a saint, as you may or may not know. Uh, James Baldwin was a literary saint. See, James Baldwin, he's a little older than I am, was a little older than I am, born in 1924, God bless him. Uh, I wonder how he'd feel if he could see, read, hear this new generation of black writers uh, looking in a copy of his autobiographical book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Uh, I find some uh, critics. Norman Mailer says about James Baldwin... He has become one of the few writers of our time. Got that? Yes. Langston Hughes, uh, one of his, what would it be, significant elders, right? The poet Langston Hughes, the man who led the uh, Harlem Renaissance. He talks about James Baldwin and says he is thought-provoking tantalizing, irritating, abusing, and amusing. He uses words as the sea uses waves to flow and beat, advance and retreat, rise and take a bow in disappearing. <laughs> the thought becomes poetry, and the poetry illuminates the thought. Well, no, I think that's just about the nicest thing uh, any poet said about uh, another poet. Let's see. I'm looking here to see, oh, the nation said all the good, right things, you know. Uh, more people wait to read his next book, you know, than any other author. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the few genuinely indispensable American writers, says the Saturday Review. Uh, anyway, uh, touching on so many hidden places in Europe and America, the Negro, the white man, we're forced to understand so much. Uh, now, James Baldwin has a movie. Uh, well, it's not his movie. It's somebody else's movie, but... Uh, called I Am Not Your Negro. What they did uh, was take the unfinished manuscript titled I Am Not Your Negro and make it into a movie. Now, I haven't seen it. Very impressionistic, but uh, just opened. So I'm just going to talk about James Baldwin per se, the writer, the man, that kind of thing, because we have to go and see the movie to see if it does justice to... Uh, my literary saint, maybe my 
Well, I don't like favorites. I don't like all this measuring. Virginia Woolf said, men don't think they measure. Anyway, uh, there are plenty of critics of James Baldwin, uh, probably because he was uh, gay, yes, black, gay, the rest of it. Anyway, James Baldwin died in Paris the first day of December in 1987. Right, he was born in Harlem in 1924, and I think he's the link between Richard Wright and these black women writers of today. Now, these are the writers who go to the heart of things. When I was young, I imagined that black writers were better Christians than white writers. Of course, when I was young, they were. Times change. <laughs> anyway, I think, yes, I have several essays on Baldwin. Most of them were written about the time. Well, there was several I wrote during this fuss over Ebonics. Yes. Uh, I think, yes, uh, the thing that is so special about James Baldwin is his tenderness. Tenderness, what was it? Toni Morrison said it was like the first turning in the womb. He, of course, thought that he was a crusader, a warrior. <laughs> Not really. Uh, he called himself a sort of bastard of the West. What I like about him is that he doesn't keep his pain to himself. He's capable of that intimacy which women are said to crave. He shared his feelings. He poured forth his deepest convictions. They became literature. Baldwin did not deny his pain, nor did he detest women. Some say this is because he was a homosexual. Now, perhaps that makes sense, but just the same. He did not detest women. What's more, he did not detest black people. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, wrote that uh, Negroes, the word he used, Frederick Douglass said Negroes were loathed. And that's why they should get the vote before women. Uh, <laughs> Frederick Douglass, as everyone but D.J. Trump knows, uh, was one of our great American heroes. Uh, and he did try to help women with their fight for freedom, but he had other priorities, of course, uh, and that amendment, you remember, that 14th Amendment, they stuck the word male in there so that black women didn't get the vote any faster than white women did, and that was another, well, not half a century, let's see, 1919, I think, uh, the black women got the vote at the same time the white women did. Uh, anyway, James Baldwin said that he did detest himself and black people in the beginning. Uh, he said that it's called internalized oppression, and he believed some of what the white world said about him. Of course, then he thought about it. He once said that 
He had to live in Paris for nine years in order to be convinced someone could hate him just for himself. Uh, Baldwin, yes, my literary saint, uh, I think one of the sources of his sainthood was the condition in which he lived as a child in Harlem. Now, we all know that suffering does not necessarily ennoble people. Richard Wright illustrated that in Native Son, a story in which racism turns a man into a brute. Just as perhaps it has desensitized so many men in our our contemporary scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's what Baldwin writes. Uh, I do not mean to be sentimental about suffering. Enough is certainly as good as a feast. But people who cannot suffer can never grow up, can never discover who they are. That man who is forced each day to snatch his manhood, his identity, out of the fire of human cruelty that rages. Ah, ha. Ah, if he survives this effort, and even if he does not, not survive it, uh, he learns something about himself and human life that no school on earth and certainly no church can teach. He achieves his own authority. That's unshakable. This is because in order to save his life, he is forced to look beneath appearances, take nothing for granted, to hear the meaning behind the words. If one is continually surviving the worst that life can bring, one eventually ceases to be controlled by a fear of what life can bring. Whatever it brings must be born. At this level of experience, one's bitterness begins to be palatable, and hatred becomes too heavy a sack to carry. So Baldwin threw down the sack. Remember uh, Gandhi saying, truth is God. Uh, Baldwin began in the church, but uh, he dropped <laughs> he dropped that sack down too. Remember Malcolm X writing that a similar thing happened to him after he visited Mecca, you know, when he embraced the world and what love there is in it. Uh, Malcolm realized that uh, the religion he had embraced, Islam, held in its arms all the people of the world, every race and gender and so forth. Uh, Now, Baldwin never denied the hatred. He studied it. He wrote about it. He was essentially a religious, a man whose presence gave off light what Zen prophets call the light of infinite compassion. The week that Baldwin died, I was surprised to find myself suffering, suffering an acute sense of loss. I suppose it was selfish. I mean, it was a sense of personal loss for times gone by, for an era, as well as a man. 
in the 60s. We called him Jimmy, I suppose. Yes, we being uh, a rather naive handful of black and white liberals who believed that everything was going to work out after the revolution. I guess we thought we would all become tea-colored, at least psychologically. Uh, I kept thinking of it as a Creole nation. Doesn't quite work. Uh, James Baldwin was responsible, certainly more than any other writer in the 60s, for my own awakening, my consciousness raising. Uh -huh. When I heard about Baldwin's death, I was sitting in the Café Mediterranean in Berkeley. <laughs> Twenty years slipped away, and yes, uh -huh. I think, yes... I think back in that day I saw myself as full of hope. How we lived on hope back then. Yes, hope was the rope we hung ourselves from. All those years back then, my life as a suburban housewife. <laughs> Actually, I seem to feel that I knew James Baldwin personally, which is nonsense. That's, that, was, that was his secret. Uh, he left America in 1948, and he commuted back from France. Now and then, he wanted to be with Martin Luther King. Baldwin was at the intellectual center of a monumental movement. It changed American consciousness forever. It gave us the radical awareness that led to both the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement. I'll never forget his first appearances on television, his vivacity, his electric intelligence, and his passionate Christianity. Some white folks looked on in shock. <laughs> One even said, hey, looks like a monkey with those great eyes. And those gnomic poetics were like nothing we had heard before. Baldwin once said his father had told him he was the ugliest child, the ugliest N-word he'd ever seen. He thought about that and came to the conclusion that nobody knows what a writer looks like, so he decided he would be a writer. A lot of us know about that feeling, the feeling that we will not be loved for ourselves, the self that people see. We must express our love at one remove between the pages of a book <laughs> or behind a microphone. Uh, the soul of James Baldwin was easy to see, on, even on TV, you could tell, uh, I think that the diverse reactions to him when he appeared on mass media uh, helped me to separate the wise observers from the people mired in fear and prejudice, those Americans who, as Baldwin himself wrote, fear blacks because they fear death itself, because they are afraid of dark places, afraid of their own shadows, in fact. He blew our minds when he wrote that racism has something to do with our fear of death. 
Today, we know that certainly applies to sexism as well. Deep down in our reptilian brain stem, there is an antipathy to that which is different from ourselves. Yes, the other, the black, the Jew, the woman, anyone who is alien. Uh Uh-huh. In a psychotic individual, this paranoid ideation is acted out and we get... (laughs) I was going to say Hitler, but... I, I think I'll say, I think I'll say, <laughs> D.J. Trump. The poetic view is that this is the rejected, yes, part of ourselves, a rejected other, yes. It's a lost part of ourselves, a lost part of our own souls. Carl Jung had a great deal to say about this if you get a chance he's the one who talks about the shadow Uh, when I first read the work of James Baldwin I felt an instant recognition I also found a piece of my own soul I'd been looking for Uh, I don't know I think well they say that Richard Wright too was kind of didactic teacher like yes Sort of like Tolstoy's. He wrote about suffering, and in particular about humiliation. The humiliations inherent in the human condition are perhaps the most serious subject for any novelist. He was a moralist in the true sense of someone who wishes to lessen suffering in the world. Baldwin began in the church. His father was a preacher. See, uh, he preached in a Harlem storefront uh, during his teens. Yes, spoken word. That'll get you. That'll get you going. Uh, he was into redemption early on. He also has observed that the church was safer than the streets. That the streets would have made him a junkie or a pimp. I remember at the same age, I found a home or sanctuary in the theater when I realized what was expected of nice white girls in the 1940s and 50s. I decided that uh, a stage was the place to go. Baldwin's theater was a pulpit. He stayed there for several years of preaching. Yes, it's like the skill of acting. Of course, disillusion sets in. As soon as there's time and the skill to think. Yes, a thinking man. Stops in his tracks. Yes, now, that autobiographical novel I mentioned, Go Tell It on the Mountain, examines his early life in Harlem. It's a wonderful novel to teach in high school. Uh, If only, well, I guess... It was one of the novels that came to the screen, but I haven't seen it for years. I, I saw Go Tell It on the Mountain um, back in, oh, golly, I think the 70s at the Pacific Film Archive. I have no idea where to find it now. Uh, I think, well, Alfre Woodard was in it. She had a smoldering role as an early lover 
of Baldwin's father. What I remember most is a hilarious scene of James Baldwin as an adolescent boy sitting in a movie house in a theater watching Betty Davis shrieking at Leslie Howard in the movie of human bondage. <laughs> what a way to learn about the white world. Uh, anyway, uh, there is a... Um, Interview around somewhere. Let's see. It's Hubert Humphrey and Baldwin. The best one. No, the best one is James Baldwin talking to uh, William Buckley. Now that that was a hoot. That is the one that tops them all. Uh, they're they're so earthbound, both those men, and they're so funny. Their sense of humor just blows my mind. Uh, at the heart of the novel Go Tell It on the Mountain is Baldwin's profound love-hate relationship with his father, actually. It was his stepfather, but who can doubt that uh, the ones who raise us are the ones who imprint our psyches. Baldwin wrote that his father hated the white man and was powerless against him, so he went into the church to ask God to kill the white man. His father's rage, he says, is what killed him. Baldwin's aching love for his father, his overwhelming sadness over his father's wasted life, are what remain in my mind. Uh, some of this material, right, uh, was televised in the 60s, right, in a, not not so much in films as in interviews, short scenes, and, of course, one of my most favorites, Blues for Mr. Charlie. It's a terrific play. Uh, Mr. Charlie is the man caught in between. He has one foot in white town and one foot in black town. He loves both black and white individuals, but he's torn apart in the uh, conflicts. Uh, yes, I think, I think Baldwin was trying not to reconcile them, but to help them understand each other. Uh, I think, yes, sociology is not poetry, but still, at the same time, Baldwin came the closest in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, I remember his discussion or his telling about his humiliation at the hands of a white policeman when he was ten years old. How the scars will never heal. He once said that his birthright was to live in the world as a man, but his inheritance in America was to be a despised N-word, yes. <laughs> I think uh, it's so strange that he was never able to come home. He died in the south of France. Uh, he said the only way to prepare for death is to live fully, to make the journey into darkness, into the nether world, and, you know, then come back with the news. He says that his father never knew what hit him, never knew who he was. The writer's journey is the same 
as that of the mythic figures in the ancient world. They go down into the dark and they come back with the knowledge we need. I hope that I have more time to talk about James Baldwin and read you some bits and pieces. Uh, his wonderful novel, uh, Another Country, is the one in which he fantasizes a world in which black and white really do try to live together and love together. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the despair and optimism generated by the massive mobilizations around the inauguration, what lessons can we draw from the successes and failures of organizing in the age of triumphant neoliberalism? Ramsey Gnan was, as part of a loose-knit group of anarchists in Edinburgh, Scotland, instrumental in generating the biggest mass movement in British history, the anti-poll tax campaign, leading ultimately to the fall of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. He'll speak on Saturday, February 11th at 6.30 at the Nebel Proctor Library, 6501 Telegraph Avenue in Oakland.